The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, I am honored to welcome my guest, Dr. Erin Silva. She's an assistant professor in the plant pathology department at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Her research and extension program focuses on sustainable and organic cropping systems, including the impact of organic management on soil biology and physical properties. She teaches classes on food sustainability and climate change and organic system health. She works closely with organic farmers and industry members both in Wisconsin and the U.S. and serves as co-facilitator of the Wisconsin Organic Advisory Council. Welcome, Dr. Silva. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you. Well, I heard you speak at the Midwest Organic Sustainable Education Service a couple of years ago, and I was really impressed with your ability to define organic agriculture, talk about some of the technology that is perhaps at the interface, maybe vying or competing with organic farming strategies, and I wanted to sort all this out for our listeners. So, But first, why don't you tell me how you became interested in plant science? Sure. I, I actually came to plant sciences in, in kind of a roundabout way, I guess. In high school, I became very interested in environmental science and environmental issues and went to college with the intention of being a wildlife biologist and learning more about conservation and how to engage policy in managing our public lands. After taking a, a plant physiology course, became fascinated with how complex plants are how amazing they are with respect to their interactions with their environment and factors relating to their growth and nutritional properties as well and, and how key they are to our food systems. So I took a course in horticulture and worked in a horticulture lab at UW-Madison and had the pleasure to be introduced to Dr. John Nabazio, who is still a prominent plant breeder in organic systems and really got turned on not only to agriculture and the role of agricultural research and maintaining a healthy, nutritious food supply, but looking more broadly at organic agriculture and the role of organic agriculture with creating sustainable agricultural systems. So it was fairly early on that I became interested in organic and have had the pleasure throughout my career to become more and more involved in the organic movement and with organic farmers and feel incredibly lucky now to have a position that is focused on organic in what I think is the, the best state in the nation to be working in organic Wisconsin, just an incredibly vibrant organic community here and an amazing group of organic farmers to work with. Yeah, there are certain states in the union that seem to be golden in terms of their support for organic. And yet at the same time, I think that from my perspective in speaking with organic farmers, some of the challenges that they face are issues that we face all over the country. So we'll talk about some of those. But I wanted to just mention something based on what you said about the magic of plants and seeing them for their complexity and their ability to adapt to different environments. 
And I just wanted to share with you an experience I had. I was down in Arizona, and I visited a Hopi reservation where there were plants growing in the desert, and there was no irrigation. These plants, these food crops, had adapted to their environment, and so it opened up this whole field of understanding how traditional plant breeding works. And I wonder if you can talk about that with regard to We've got climate change. You're focused on that component of agriculture. How will our plants adapt, and can they adapt with what seems to be breakneck speed in changing climate patterns? Oh, it definitely will be a challenge. As you said, we are seeing changes in weather patterns at a rate that truly has not been experienced within the human experience and even prior to that. We are in an unprecedented time, and, and how plants and how our agricultural systems are, are going to be able to adapt is certainly an issue of, of high priority as we're looking at maintaining our food supply and, and not only maintaining calories, but also maintaining nutrition. You know, certainly, investments in not only public plant breeding, but participatory plant breeding involving farmers where we are looking at adapting plants to specific environments where they can take advantage of the nutrients that are available, the precipitation patterns, the weather patterns, and maintaining the diverse genetic resources that are going to allow for adaptation to be possible, particularly at the rates that we potentially are going to be experiencing a few years into the future are definitely key. I am hopeful that with efforts, particularly in the organic community, that do emphasize partnerships between public plant breeders and farmers, that we will be able to attain those goals. But it is certainly not going to be easy without that broad base of participation. Mm -hmm. The messages that I see all the time from the biotechnology industry is that we have to use technology in order to survive these climate changes say, drought or excessive downpours, excessive water. How do you feel about that? I I know that you've also been looking at biological activity in the soil, Mm -hmm. and it also seems to me that the organic management creates a soil that is so much more resilient than we see with conventional models that depend so much more on chemical inputs. Now, that is certainly true, and um, beyond even agriculture, there's so much that we are at the cusp of learning and beginning to appreciate more and more about the role of the microbiome. And not only the microbiome as it relates to interactions with plants and particularly the soil root interface, but even beyond that, the role of microbiomes and, and microbiology on the leaf surface as well and how that relates to plant health. There's a lot of parallels, interestingly, between agriculture and plant health and human nutrition. And I recall fairly early in my career that someone had given me the analogy of agriculture being, in some respects, very similar to medicine. We look at biology and look at the uh, professions that are related to biological science, and medicine is really an application of understanding human biology and doing good in society using our knowledge of human biology. And, and agriculture is, is quite similar, and, but instead of human biology, we're looking at plant biology, but it really is that application and application to better enhance 
the health of the plant and and ideally the nutritional quality of the plant. Mm -hmm. So similar to with our understanding in medicine of how when we're looking at treating disease, we know that using antibiotics as a first line of defense is not, it's going to cause problems, not only with respect to fostering the health of the entire organism, whether it be a human or an animal, but it's a solution that's going to break down. And increasingly, we're learning more about the role of the gut microbiome and how microbes have an interplay with the immune system and how fostering health through nutrition, not through supplements, through healthy eating, and more holistically enhancing human health. There's a lot of parallels to how we're doing that in agricultural systems. Similarly, as we're looking at a single solution, whether it be a herbicide or a pesticide, I mean, we certainly are seeing issues with having that as our first line of defense in our agricultural systems as we look at increasing herbicide resistance and the increase of herbicide-resistant weeds. And similar to our recognition and our understanding of the human microbiome and the gut microbiome and how that interacts with the immune system, there's a lot of parallels with agriculture and our appreciation of soil biology and that incredibly complex soil microbial community and how that has direct communication with plant roots. And plants have an immune system. They can have chemical signaling within the plant that can upregulate defense mechanisms that we would never see just by observing with the naked eye, but there's an incredibly complex interaction with the plant and its environment. So I do think there's a lot of uh, parallels there that we can appreciate as we're learning more about human health, how we're approaching agriculture and creating healthy systems where the plants are naturally more resilient to fight stresses, whether they be biotic stresses such as pathogens causing disease, whether it be insects, but also abiotic stresses such as extreme weather, whether it be extreme heat or extreme cold, and also water stress, whether it be excess water or too little water. And that's where when we're looking at selecting plants and looking at breeding plants, doing it in a natural environment where we are able to, again, maybe our understanding isn't completely there of the precise mechanisms of how the plant's interacting with the environment and the microbial community, but we are taking advantage of those sorts of relationships by selecting plants and and breeding new plants within the environments in which they will be grown, um, exposed to those same stresses and those same microbial communities that they have these very complex interactions with that were just at our initial understanding of the nature of those sorts of interactions. Mm -hmm. So interesting to hear you talk about agriculture and plant biology because, believe it or not, within our curriculum in dietetics and nutrition and food and human health, we don't study agriculture. And Hmm. the older I get, the more I realize how much we are missing by not connecting those pieces. As you mentioned, the soil biology, the soil microbes, and the the similarities between what goes on in our gut with our human microbiome and in the soil and with plants, it seems that we need to have more of these conversations where nutritionists and dietitians communicate with people like yourself and combine our knowledge to have a better outcome or a synergy of this information moving forward. 
and it really strikes me that the, the parallels again between managing plants for more of a holistic system to enhance health and ideally then enhance the nutritional density of those plants and how that intersects with enhancing human health. I mean, certainly humans have co-evolved with plants and those relationships of humans and agriculture have been around for thousands of years and it's, I think, naive to try to think that we understand all aspects of the system and that we can use our fairly recent technology to be able to do better, I guess, than what the natural process of of evolution and selection in the natural environment has done. Yeah, because we don't really fully understand what's in place right now, and yet we're working to change that, and that concerns me. Mm -hmm. It certainly is being a bit more confident in our ability to, I think, understand, again, these complex and ecological interactions that we certainly are increasingly doing research in these systems and enhancing our knowledge, but still there's so much more that we can learn. Yeah. Listeners, let me take a moment and remind everyone that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are joined by Dr. Erin Silva. She's an assistant professor in the plant pathology department at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and her research and extension program focuses on sustainable and organic cropping systems, and she teaches classes on food, sustainability, and climate change, and the organic system health. Well, let's talk now about organic systems. I know that you travel to many conferences nationally. What are some of the common concerns or questions you receive from your audiences that perhaps we general consumers and dietitians need to understand as well? There is an incredible amount of optimism and growth in the organic community. So overall, the sentiment within organic is very positive. Organic farmers having often shifted from a conventional paradigm, speak very positively and and optimistically about the impacts of organic practices, which include diverse crop rotations, which include more of a holistic management of fertility in their systems. They can see the immediate benefits on soil health and building their soil and, and creating a system that will be sustainable both environmentally and economically as well throughout you know, their career farming and, and into their children's careers farming as well. Um, so overall, the sentiment is very positive, but certainly there are challenges that do exist. And certainly challenges with the interface of the conventional farming community and the organic farming community, they're certainly real, particularly when it comes to contamination of the organic product with neighboring genetics from GMO varieties of particularly corn, which is problematic with respect to an organic farmer being able to market that product and be able to maintain the integrity of organic that the consumers have come to expect, and rightfully so. When someone purchases organic in the grocery store, they certainly want to have the confidence that they're purchasing product that meets the organic expectations, and the farmers too. And the farmers are very proud of their product and certainly want to provide consumers and market product that does meet those high standards and maintain organic integrity. And unfortunately, right now, those challenges and the solutions to those challenges tend to fall on the organic farmer, whether it be altering their planting dates of their crop to avoid 
the synchronization of pollination of their crop with a neighboring crop that does have genetics that have come from genetic engineering, or whether it's putting in a buffer strip, which then decreases the amount of land that they do have available to produce a crop and therefore reducing their yield potential. So the organic farmer really bears the majority of that burden. It can be very difficult to overcome those issues. Increasingly, as well, with some of the newer technology that's coming on the pipeline, especially with some new herbicide-resistant varieties of soybean, I know from my work on the Organic Advisory Council that they're, especially with specialty crop growers, those organic producers that are growing vegetables, which are very high value and very important with respect to maintaining healthy, nutritious food on a local and regional level. Not only, of course, do we want to see grain crops, but we do want to see organic farmers and conventional farmers as well that are are growing these high-nutrient-density vegetable crops. But these farmers are experiencing more incidents of herbicide drift, which may not be directly related to GMO crop varieties per se, but certainly there are some newer technologies that are integrated with the incorporation of herbicides that are riskier with respect to drift and damaging neighboring vegetable crops. So that's something that farmers are currently experiencing and are certainly worried coming into the next few years that there will be increased incidence of that sort of drift to contamination that, again, oftentimes the burden is borne by the organic farmer to not only be able to take on that loss, but to be able to prove that there was contamination occurring and who where that contamination was coming from, I guess. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting. I call those specialty crops medically important crops for Mm -hmm. all the reasons Mm -hmm. that you said. These are the crops that carry the nutrients that we have data that dietitians are very familiar with that prevent heart disease, that prevent cancer. And as you mentioned, the drift will compromise the productivity of those crops. And I've seen even locally where farmers have had to drop out of their own CSA because of drift or you don't see them at the farmer's market anymore. Why? What happened? They were victims of drift. And there is no compensation legally for them. And while the farmer loses, so does the consumer's health. So I think that, once again, coming together, consumers, farmers, those of us who work in the health community, coming together to see what is the best way to produce our food moving forward into the future, so that we protect these foods that we know to be medically important. Something else, Dr. Silva, that I wanted to bring up has to do with the way farming is framed in the media and how working with organic farmers, I often see such wisdom, also with indigenous populations, such keen observation skills and a good sense of inquiry. The scientific mind, even though it's not It's not seen as high tech, and yet it is able to produce healthy food for the masses. And I wonder if you could talk about how we frame conversations. I've I've never seen modern and organic put together in the same sentence, but I think we should. Oh, yes, definitely. Organic farmers, they are some of the most forward-thinking, educated, pro-science 
people that I've had the pleasure to work with, it is not one of the things that I, I often say when I'm giving talks, and something that I think is a real misconception is that organic farming is moving backwards. It's your grandfather's agriculture. I mean, it's, it's moving back to, to farming of the 19th century, the early 20th century, and nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, organic farmers, they want more research. They want more knowledge. They want to understand the system and do better using that understanding in a, in a holistic way. And certainly our incredibly generous and incredibly enthusiastic partners in research is volunteering their time and their land to contribute to the body of knowledge. And it's, it's a community that's not technologically adverse. I mean, there are certainly organic farmers that are using technology in very, very innovative ways, using GPS and, and precision agriculture. I mean, certainly using soil tests and managing their nutrients in a way to enhance crop productivity and quality, but not causing inadvertent environmental effects that are negative. It's something that certainly has frustrated me over the years because I've heard some of those same themes. Again, when I hear that organic farming is moving backwards, organic farming is a different way of agriculture, but it's extremely progressive and extremely interested in better understanding our system. But it it is looking at more of a holistic ecological approach and conducting science and, and using technology within that framework which differs at times to other agricultural approaches. Mm-hmm. What would you want dietitians and consumers to know about what we're facing moving forward as a society with regard to agriculture? Mm-hmm. Dietitians are targeted heavily by the biotech industry as being the only way forward. Mm-hmm. And there are messages like, oh, we can coexist, right? This myth, I think, this illusion that we can coexist with an organic farmer growing one way and a conventional farmer next door, when we just spoke about the problems with drift, both genetic and herbicide drift. What are the messages, if you were to be in front of a group of consumers or a group of dietitians who are focused on health and food, what would you want them to know? I think that one of the, again, more frustrating arguments that I hear presented against organic are arguments against the productivity of the system. And research has been conducted at various long-term trials in association with land-grant universities to show that organic systems can be very productive. They can meet conventional yields very, very well, particularly in some of our commodity crops, including cereal grains. And when we're looking at feeding people, and certainly cereal grains are one of the key staple crops. But in terms of also creating systems that, not only in the U.S., but also internationally, that are really looking at enhancing the nutrition of populations versus just producing calories, organic really offers some incredible opportunities and incredible strengths with respect to the diversification of the system that brings together not only staple crops but also vegetable crops and allows for food security on more of a, a local level. And we certainly see organic approaches, whether it's certified organic or not, but, but those same themes and foundations of organic increasingly being 
practiced in our urban communities and allowing for more food security within at-risk populations in urban communities, and also in developing nations where we see more local food production that is going directly to feeding families, where communities are responsible for producing not only, again, the calories, but the nutrition to allow people to thrive, communities to thrive. So I really have appreciated, again, maybe not certified organic, but but those concepts, those foundational concepts of organic, of, of healthy soils, diversified crop production, enhancing the food and nutritional security of populations, not only in the U.S., but across the globe. Mm-hmm. When we see new genetically engineered foods coming down the pipe, and they seem to be coming faster and more furiously. I think there's even a movement for USDA maybe to grant approval without doing as much research as maybe you or I would prefer. But when a consumer is faced in the marketplace with a new product, some examples might be the new Arctic apple, there is a new innate potato. Both of those have anti-browning mechanisms. So for the consumer, doesn't this look great? We'll be able to slice an apple and not have browning, or we'll reduce waste, perhaps, because we won't have to throw something away that doesn't look as pretty. How do consumers assess these new products? Like, What kinds of questions should we be asking when a new product comes to market from your perspective? That is a very complex and complicated question, and certainly the technologies are moving forward at a rapid pace that were not anticipated when some of the first regulation was passed, both within the federal government with respect to genetically engineered crops more broadly, but also the organic regulation as well and how the organic regulation views genetic modification and genetic engineering. It's something that certainly scientists and others within agriculture are are wrestling with, especially those that are concerned about the intersection of agriculture that does rely heavily on genetically engineered crops and and those that are wishing to, to take another approach. One of the factors that I do think is rather interesting, the way that GMOs are currently regulated, it's actually done by three different federal agencies, the USDA, the FDA, and the Environmental Protection Agency. And in terms of how FDA views exemptions and the um, approval of, of GM crops to be able to enter the market, companies can gain that exemption by demonstrating that that food essentially is substantially equivalent to prior existing food in terms of composition, nutrition, and safety. And with some of these newer technologies, that gets more and more difficult to find that substantial equivalent, in part because of how the, the technology is it actually works within the plant and the fact that it's so new. So that there there definitely are some questions as to how how that will move forward and, and how the FDA will will view that issue of substantial equivalence. And, and also with respect to USDA and EPA's oversight, again, due to the fact that some of this new technology is directly editing genomes versus inserting a new gene, um, it certainly becomes more complex. There is still a lot that needs to be determined and how things move forward. It's it definitely will 
evolve as this technology rapidly comes on the market, like with the the mushrooms that similarly through this new technology exhibit that anti-browning property that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll have to have you back and talk more about some of these new technologies as they evolve and the things that you discover with them. But in closing, I want to thank you so much for being my guest, and I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thanks especially to Dr. Aaron Silva, Assistant Professor in the Plant Pathology Department at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Thank you, Dr. Silva. Thank you for having me.